morning, everyone. How are you doing this week after Easter? We good? All right, I'm proud of you guys for being here. I'm excited to be in God's Word. I was walking around the back, and it was kind of like, why am I nervous? I don't get nervous to speak, but I think there's a lot in this passage that is life-altering. And so my hope is that God's Word really does speak to each and every single one of us today. We get to study someone who had a profound conversion to Christianity, one that through the ages is looked at as like the extreme version of conversion that far too many people in the church of the living God actually covet this type of testimony because they think that perhaps their own testimony is not as supernatural. So we're going to talk about that specifically today and how God doesn't do what we want to fulfill his plan, but does what we need to make us more like him, which is a part of his plan. So chapter 9, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Normally what we do is we go verse by verse. As Pat read, like, and you did a great job, this is a really long passage. And so we're going to do some bite-sized pieces, and I promise to get us out before the warrior game. All right, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Meanwhile. I love when parts of the passages have words like meanwhile or therefore and things like this. Luke, while speaking about Simon the sorcerer, which we studied two weeks ago, and last week we studied Philip and the Ethiopian, while this was taking place, we have this young Pharisee of Pharisees, Saul, who is so anti-Christian that he's breathing out, or in some translations, breathing in murderous threats, because this is the culture that Saul had surrounded himself with, which is a dangerous thought if you think about it, to be so enthralled with hate against something that everything around you is feeding that feeling towards this specific thing that you detest. And this is what Saul, who we know as Paul, was part of. Second part of verse one. He went to the high priest And asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus, so that if any found if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Saul, or for today's purposes, I will primarily refer to Paul, because that's who he becomes, is relentless in his opposition against this Christian movement known as the way. The way was probably a term made up by those who were opposing Christians as almost a parody or they were making fun of the cause of Christians because they were following the one who called himself the way. But Jesus didn't do this out of pride. He called himself this because of the reality that the gospel of Jesus Christ, while available to any and every type of person who would bow a knee and submit to Jesus' lordship, was not inclusive in the sense that you could ignore or reject God sacrificing his very own son for the sins of mankind. In John 14, 5 through 7, we studied this a long time ago in the book of John. Thomas, who we know is Doubting Thomas, said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus being the way, and also, as he said, the truth and the life, is an invitation for us to not entrust our lives to a placebo version of religion. 
as long as I've been a Christian, and honestly, before I became a Christian when I was 20, I had witnessed people and perhaps I even justified myself by something other than trusting and following Jesus. Because the idea of accepting my new creation, which is found when you become a Christian, when you start to follow Jesus, this new creation, and trusting my identity to the Lord is difficult. It's hard. Because ever since I was born, I've wanted to control how people see me. Is this just me? Am I on an island? All right. I want people to know what makes me special. I want to lead the narrative and explain what that means. I want people to know what's different about me and what's unique. But trusting Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life brings freedom. Because my identity, which has changed countless times, okay, I don't have a bunch of pictures where I'm like, oh, emo Tim, and no, 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 I don't have any of that. But it has changed countless times in my life, and my, my identity is now secure and able to be supported by the fact that I live for Christ and his glory rather than attempting to always be impressing other people and trying to be someone I'm ultimately not. Paul who had for all his life up until this point attempted to justify himself by how religious, pious, and rule-following he was, was appalled. He was offended by this movement of people known as the way because their way of life was not attempting to exalt themselves by their morality, but instead they would exalt Jesus and then extend grace to one another. Now, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and a Pharisee was always offended by those who weren't as good as they were in their own mind. A pastor in San Diego named Larry Osborne said it best. He said, I've found that becoming a modern-day accidental Pharisee is a lot like eating at Denny's. No one wants to go there. You just end up there. And if you've ever been in the church, which you obviously have, or you have justified yourself by what you do, then you end up here as a Pharisee without even realizing it. Now, Paul was so relentless. He didn't care if you were male or female. If you were part of the way, you were a direct enemy to Paul and his religion. And here's why. Because grace is offensive to religion. Because grace is a gift, and people want to be able to exalt themselves by earning something. Verse 3, as he, Paul, neared Damascus on his journey, journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now Saul, or Paul, was traveling, and as we'll see in a moment, at least two other men were with Paul. They experienced this flash of light, and it knocked Paul to the ground. And then he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I'd like to point out that Saul, who had become Paul, really wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was persecuting the way, Jesus' church, the people who identified with Jesus. But Jesus seems consistently throughout the Gospels to consider an attack on his people as an attack on him personally. Now, I believe it's because we are grafted into Jesus' work when we become a Christian. We are only saved by one work, and that work is Jesus' work on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. And Paul asks, who are you, Lord? So Paul's question is a great one, because each of us need to ask who the Lord of our life is. 
If we really think about our lives, is the Lord of our life ourself? Is it some created thing? Is it a person? Or is it Jesus? Lord, who are you? Verse 5, second part, I am Jesus, he replied, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Jesus not only makes himself known in this post-resurrection appearance, but he gives orders to Paul to go somewhere. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Here's a big point of the sermon. Being in Christ, which means you're a Christian, being in Christ means that Jesus is in charge. And I think we've lost that. I think we want to add Jesus to our life. I think we want to feel a little bit more religious. I think we want to give Jesus some time, but we're going to live the rest of the time throughout our week for ourselves. And that's difficult for people to appreciate if you're still attempting to justify yourself by something you do. Verse 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. Now, this was a miraculous and frightening event if you're Paul or even his companions. The text says that they heard the sound. It doesn't say that they heard what was said, but also that they didn't know who said it. And after this great light that Paul saw and knocked him to his knees, he then attempted to open his eyes and he could see nothing. Not only could he not see for three days... But he ate and drank nothing for three days. Man, I get hangry after a few hours. While those in the East, if we're honest, are definitely a little bit more used to fasting and handling the results of what fasting does to the body, this is miraculous in and of itself because as three days is far too long to not drink anything specifically. Verse 10. In Damascus, there was a, name, uh, a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas, that's the name of the person's house, on Straight Street, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Now, a few things with this short passage. One, the Lord came to one of his disciples named Ananias in a vision. Now, I've said this before, if I could have anything given to me in the scriptures, it would be to be able to read tone. Because I don't know what the disciples and apostles are saying when they say what they say. But I think it's funny that Ananias has this vision from the Lord and he is like, yes, Lord? Like, this is normal. Okay? But two that Jesus told Ananias to go to the house on Straight Street where Saul would be at a guy's house named Judas. It's interesting that God uses two men to help bring God's plan together in Paul's life, two names that were very common in the time. And if you've been reading with us, we studied the book of John back in the day, and now we're in the book of Acts, you know that Judas, a different Judas, was the one who sold out Jesus for a minute amount of silver. And then there's Ananias, who died while attempting to pretend to be a Christian. And God used a different Ananias here, who the Lord would choose to help restore Paul into the kingdom of God. And third, that Jesus, in this vision, gave a command for Ananias to place his hands on Saul, who was well known to early Christians as a persecutor and an enemy of Jesus. But look at how Ananias responds. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Okay, does anyone see how ridiculous this is? Not the concerns. I think each and every one of us, if we were in Ananias' place, would feel the exact same way about Saul because he had been full of hate and opposition against everything and everything Christ-ish. But because Ananias is arguing with a vision. Like, this moment is comical and would be something we'd then be worried about for an individual if we saw someone arguing with what looked like themselves. I don't want Cheerios. Yeah, you do. No, I don't want Cheerios. Like, that's what this looks like. But the Lord said in verse 15 to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Rut-row. I kind of love that Luke's account of what happened, there wasn't a lot of Jesus justifying his commands. He just said, go. Why? Because this man, Saul, who would become Paul, is going to become my chosen instrument. Being a Christian church... Being a follower and a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean that you get to question and argue with God when he tells you to do something. If we believe Jesus is Lord, we cannot justify our unwillingness to obey. It just exposes our lack of trust that God is really the one in control. To proclaim my name to the Gentiles, Jesus says, those who were irreligious, those who did not follow the Torah, and also to their kings and to the people of Israel. Now, Israel, while not first, was also. And the order is very significant. Why? Because I think Paul wanted to be used for the Jews first and foremost. And Jesus says, I will show this instrument how much he must suffer for my name. Paul would suffer for Jesus' name. If you've read ahead, you know that he eventually is martyred. But even before that, there are consistent struggles and trials as he spread the news of the gospel to the Gentiles, to their kings, and to the people of Israel. Back to the passage, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like The word like, it wasn't scales, it was like scales, fell from Saul's eyes, and then he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. What a glorious picture of redemption. Ananias, after arguing with Jesus in a vision, now obeys and does what the Lord had for him to do, the good works in which God had for Ananias to walk in, to help Saul who would be renamed Paul, into his next step as a follower of Jesus. Ananias, while praying over Paul, received the Holy Spirit. Now, listen, I believe this is descriptive, not prescriptive. Laying on of hands. I can't just walk around Starbucks and just go, well, you seem to need Jesus. I pray in the name of Jesus you receive the Holy Spirit. It does not work like that. Could God do this? Well, he did here. But what we know and see more consistently in Scripture is that by faith, we trust Christ and his grace. And that leads us to repentance. That leads us to a change of direction. And then God seals us with his Holy Spirit. 
Uh, just a side note on Ananias. Ananias isn't talked about again in the Scriptures, and yet you have this man who hasn't done very much in the Scriptures, but just to remind you, he's in the Scriptures, and what did he do? He laid hand on Saul, who became Paul, who became the most bold of all the apostles. Man, I want to be Ananias. I think we're always so, man, I want to be like Paul. Do you, though? Get shipwrecked, get bit by a snake, get beaten up, stoned, all that stuff. And yet, Ananias prayed over Saul, and he became Paul, and we have heard the gospel because of Paul's ministry. Paul now could see Jesus for who he actually is, no longer an enemy, no longer someone he felt he had to oppose, but the God that the scriptures he had memorized as a young man actually foreshadowed. Could you imagine reading the scriptures for your entire life, reading and memorizing and knowing every word, what it meant in Hebrew, and then finding out everything you read, you didn't actually understand that it all spoke about Jesus. Ray Steadman puts it this way. That is what conversion is. It is a change from thinking that you can run your own life to an acknowledgement that God holds the program in his hands. And he has the right to tell you what to do. This was the first thing Paul experienced when he became a Christian. This right of Jesus Christ to be Lord and to tell him what he was to do. Conversion is a revolutionary change of government resulting in a radical change in behavior. That is what happened to Paul. What seemed like scales fell from Paul's eyes. They made it so he couldn't see, and now all of a sudden he could see, and God used this circumstance to get his attention, to draw his affection to Jesus. A couple of things. Maybe you're against the idea of Christianity, Maybe you have a list of excuses to why you don't think you can believe in the carpenter's son. And generally, they have to do with how hypocritical Christians are, and we totally are, for the record. Maybe you just can't believe that Jesus lived, that he died, that he rose again, proving the fact that he is God. I, don't, I pray that not that you'd get every single answer that you think you need, but that God would stir in you an affection through his sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and that you would embrace his grace. And secondly, I know there aren't a lot of staunch atheists that come through the doors of a church building. Why would they? But I do assume that there are many people possibly in this place right now who grew up in the faith, attended church regularly, and perhaps, maybe, have lost your zeal for the God who, while you were at your worst, Christ died for you. What I hope you can get your head around is that if you grew up in the church consistently reading your Bible, prayed before every meal, before every night, right before you went to bed every night, you also are a trophy of grace. And it requires God's intervention for you to be forgiven of your sins. While possibly you've had different types of sins than some of the rest of us that maybe didn't grow up in the church, anything that we attempt to justify ourselves with other than Jesus is sin. So think about that for a second. Think about what you did last night. Oh, I did this wrong and I need to go to church to repent. Yeah, maybe, but did you justify yourself by anything other than Jesus? Because that's the thing that really keeps you apart from God. Now, I don't have words that can change your disposition when it comes to knowing, loving, and trusting Christ. 
But I can, I can speak from personal experience. I can testify that even though circumstances and my attitude changes, Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, loves me the same today as he did when he first came to me and rescued me. He loves me the same right now that he did when he opened my eyes to his grace. He loves me the same right now as he did when I was stuck in my sin years after I had believed in Jesus. Even though I was unable to repent or able to admit that I was stuck in sin that I could not pull myself out of, Jesus loved me the same. The reality is he doesn't change, nor does his love for people no matter how much we attempt to convince ourselves otherwise, we think we're going to out the cross. You cannot. Verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Paul had done a 180. He who was known for his vehement opposition to the Christian way was now debating and preaching in the synagogues about Jesus being God's only son. And those who attended this, those who witnessed Paul doing this could not believe it as they were mentioning the fact that not too long before, he was attempting to have Christians arrested for their belief in Jesus, and now he is the most outspoken of them all, saying the exact same message. He also baffled other Jews with his compelling arguments about Jesus from the same Old Testament that everyone had read and knew. I want to point out something that I think applies to far too many Christians in the church today, Maybe you've grown up in the church and you've seen other believers come to Christ and when someone comes to faith, possibly from a life of hard living and rejecting Jesus and then all of a sudden has this change of heart, has this change of mind, if true repentance has actually taken place, they seem to be more passionate, don't they? They seem to be more zealous, excitable, and even, let's be real, they seem to be more celebrated in the Christian church because of their Christian conversion than those of us who grew up in the church, use flannel graphs, and actually know what the second verse of Amazing Grace is. Listen, each of our testimonies are a gift from God. Let me say that again, because I don't think you heard me. Each of our testimonies is a gift from God. They were given to us to remember what God did. And a person with an exciting testimony is no more loved by God than someone who doesn't have the same type of story. Each of our stories is to remember what God did, to draw us to himself, to be able to testify to God's grace, and we don't know how our specific testimony will affect different people. Some of you are like, I've actually heard you say this, oh, I have a boring testimony. Yeah, you know what? I hope my kids have your testimony. Grew up in the church. Parents loved me. Told me about Jesus. I repented. I followed Jesus my whole life. That's what I want for my kids. But God can do what he wants to do the way he wants to do it. Verse 23. After many days had gone by, there was a conspiracy among the Jews to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan 
Day and night, they kept close watch at the city gates in order to kill him, but his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Paul's testimony was so powerful that those who continued to oppose Christ and his people devised a plan to kill Paul. But Paul, served by the other followers of Jesus, helped him get through the wall in a basket. Uh, Quick note. Because I think sometimes when we read the book of Acts, we kind of think that all this happened like in a few weeks. Uh, This, what we just read, didn't happen in one day. This was a period of about three years of Paul defending and proclaiming Christ. In fact, Paul speaks about this. He's writing to the church in Galatia. The book we know is Galatians. And here's what he says. Paul in his own words says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being, I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days, and I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Paul fills in the blanks of timing as he writes to the church in Galatia. Now, this is one of my favorite things about Scripture. It holistically tells the story of God and his work of spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. But you can't just read one letter. you got to read all the letters together, and all of a sudden it paints a great picture of who God is and what God has done. Back to Acts 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he, being Saul or Paul, tried to join the disciples, (laughs) But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. Understandably so, right? Paul had been enemy number one against Christianity. And here he was claiming he had seen Jesus and now was proclaiming that he was wrong in his past. Let me just let that sit there for a second. Christians can admit when they're wrong. Okay, I'm the only one. That's fine. He could admit that he was wrong in his past, that Jesus really is the Christ. Now, it's hard to accept this, especially when you're afraid, if you're one of these disciples, it was hard for them to believe this because they were afraid for their own well-being. Being a Christian means that admitting when you are wrong does not disqualify you from grace. It actually means you recognize your need and God's love. I don't understand why so many of those of us who have committed to Jesus still think that we need to earn or show off as if we could do anything to deserve God's sacrifice. A Christian superpower, you guys ready for this, is a new gospel lens that means that when we fail, we can own up to it, and that doesn't disqualify the grace that we've received, it illustrates it. Paul's a glorious example of someone who was changed by God's intervention, but those who grew up in the church and have possibly looked the part their entire lives discount that God intervening and making grace preeminent in our lives is the exact same testimony Paul has, just with a lot more collateral damage to report. 
uh, dogma or uh, being black and white and, and absolutely arguing some secondary thing would be my argument for, is what dogma is, is not a badge of honor. God's grace expressed and received through Jesus is the only thing that make any of us holy. And that same invitation is offered for any and everyone who would respond in faith and humility. Being someone under the law of grace ought to help us major in the gospel, not pretend that morality is the evidence of salvation. Humility and the ability to accept when we are wrong is a true marker of God's work of the Spirit in us. Now, Paul was scaring the other apostles. And here comes who we know as the son of encouragement shows up. Verse 27, but Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord, that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of Jesus. Now you've got Barnabas, son of encouragement, he is called. He comes in and he vouches for Paul, shared what Paul shared with him about Paul's miraculous conversion. The, ex- the apostles didn't accept Saul on his own, but they did accept Saul's testimony along with Barnabas vouching for him. And Paul, alongside the other apostles, began to bo- preach boldly that Jesus is the Christ in and around Jerusalem. Verse 29, he talked and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. By the way, Paul's from Tarsus. Talk about a polarizing message. Now, personally, I've preached Jesus from a pulpit or, I guess, a music stand. I've preached Jesus in coffee shops, not like, hey, Tim, would you like a coffee and would you stand here and proclaimed it? Like, no, I just had met with someone and told them about Jesus. I've preached Jesus on public transportation, Planes, trains, and automobiles, in restaurants, and even a movie theater, okay? Not like stood up while the movie was going, but like I've been invited to a movie theater to preach Jesus. And I have preached the gospel in these places, and not once has my life been threatened. Paul, everywhere he went with the message of the gospel, with his testimony of being the most Pharisee of Pharisees, now believing and proclaiming that Jesus really is the Son of God, was offending the Greek Jews so much that they began, like in Damascus, to attempt to silence and kill Paul. So the other believers helped Paul leave and go back, first to Caesarea and then to Tarsus, where Paul was originally from. Now, I want to read ahead a bit in Acts 22. Because Paul was testifying to a group of people what the Lord had done, and we see more of this story from Paul's very words in Acts 22. Here's what it says. Paul says in his own words, I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council call themselves can testify, or all of the council can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus, and went there to bring their people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. 
Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. And my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one and hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all the people of what you have seen and heard. And now what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on his name. Now look at how Paul makes a bit of a detour in his story to point out why he left Jerusalem like he did and how he attempted to argue with God. Here's what it says, verse 17. When I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying at the temple and I fell into a trance and I saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Now, Paul absolutely believed that he was God's best tool for reaching Jews with the gospel through his story and intellect. And yet, just because Paul wanted to and believed that he could be effective for the kingdom didn't mean that his way was the way that God was going to use Paul. I hope that doesn't get lost on you. Verse 21, then the Lord said to me, go, and I will send you far away to the Gentiles. If you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus in this place today, you are a Christian And we as Christians exist to glorify God. That is why we were redeemed. And sometimes that is by putting out effort that we wouldn't do otherwise. Sometimes it's by opening our mouth and sharing Jesus or serving another person or giving to the work of the ministry. But God doesn't need us to try harder to be justified. We are justified already by Jesus and need to be willing to be used. God, who is able, which we sang, wanted Paul to be available. Paul focused on his own abilities. God chose to use Paul's availability. And all of a sudden, Paul's no longer a superhero. Paul is a human that God chose to use, not because he was amazing, but because God is amazing and Paul was willing to be used. God has gifted us, Christians, his son. God has gifted us, Christians, his spirit. God has gifted us our salvation. God has gifted us talents that we can use for his glory, but God chooses how they are used to make much of him. That's not your responsibility to try to earn anything or justify yourselves through effort. I wonder how often God wants to use us and our ability but we're unwilling to give him our availability in the first place. So we miss out. We miss out on growing through the experience of being used because we want to do it our way and not allow God to grow us his way. So after all of this, we've read all of this passage, so after all of Paul's zeal, all of his boldness, God very sternly sent him away 
What takes place at the church right after Paul, the most bold of all apostles, is sent away from the church? Here's what it says, verse 31. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a great time of peace and was strengthened. Living in fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. The boldest of all apostles, Paul, the one that had checked all the boxes of religion, the zealest of the zealous, was sent away and the church thrived without him. It's almost like God has a plan and that plan isn't relying on man, but God and his will and grace. That was not a commercial for an old NBC show, I'm sorry. That was a reminder that his will constantly happens through grace. Because when he shows grace to you and I, when we get what we do not deserve in the person and work of Jesus, while we are still sinners and still sinning, God shows off his character and points us to his son who is grace personified and the only one who can earn our salvation for us is Jesus. As one of your pastors, I want to challenge you to realize that your relationship with God is not punitive. It's not based on you trying really hard and then God loves you. God loves you. God gave you his spirit, and by his strength, you and I are able to walk in the works that God planned out for us to walk in his glory, to point people to him. Malik, you can come on up. Years ago, a story was told of a father who coached a team of eight-year-old boys in baseball. He had a few excellent players and some who just could not get the hang of the game. His team didn't win once all season. But in the last inning of the last game, his team was only down by one run. There was one boy who had never been able to hit the ball or catch it. With two outs, it was his turn to bat, and lo and behold, he got a single. The next batter was the team slugger. Finally, these players might actually win a game, and the slugger connected, and as the boy hit the single and ran to second, he saw the ball coming towards him, and not really certain of the rules of baseball, he caught it. Final out. The father's team lost. Quickly, this father coach told his team, cheer. The boy beamed. It never occurred to him that he actually just lost the game for them. All he knew was that for the first time ever, he had hit the ball and he had caught the ball. And the parents of this boy later thanked him, thanked the coach, because that boy had never been in a game ever that entire season, and they never told the boy exactly what happened. They didn't want to ruin it for him. I wonder, church, when you or I do something that we consider extraordinary for the Lord, where we begin to justify ourselves by that action or really think that perhaps like Paul did, that God is lucky to have us to glorify him, if we're not just like this boy who didn't understand the rules of the game he was playing. And while we think we really did something that helped God's will along, instead God in his grace and mercy did something in us in spite of our misconceptions and misunderstanding that the gospel is all about him. The law wasn't meant to be kept. It can't be. It can't be by us. But the law was provided to point us to the only one who could keep it, and that's Jesus Christ. 
For the longest time, I thought that I had to pay God back for grace, never realizing that, A, I couldn't. And if I were to attempt to pay God back, his grace was no longer a gift, but a discount on my salvation. And God, as we know, is the great gift giver. He's not a group on. So maybe, after hearing about Paul and his arguing with God and the change that took place in him and the change that took place in the church without him, perhaps that leads you to repentance. Maybe it leads you to realize that it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. And all I want my life to be about is being with him because that's the only thing that justifies me. For my salvation, for my sanctification, and for my existence. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, thank you that the story of Saul who became Paul is about you. It's not about Paul. He's just another trophy of grace who you decided to use to make much of your name. And God, we thank you that we as a community this morning get to make much of you. So Lord, as we sing praise to your name, as we worship in song this morning, would you just do a work in us to remind us of the great reality that God, while we were at our worst, Christ died. And the story doesn't end there. There's a comma. God, you rose from the dead. So thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your word and how it makes it so utterly clear that we don't have to pay you back for grace. We just need to receive it and walk in it. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.